0: Let's just bow our hearts as we come to God's word together. Father, we thank you for your word once again. Lord, we so often say that we are grateful for what you've given us. But Lord, truly we are because it's through your word that really we know anything about anything. Lord, it's your word that reveals to us who our creator God is. Lord, creation itself declares as a creator. But it's your word that tells us who you are. It's your word that tells us of the reason for the desperate situation humanity finds itself in. It's a word that then tells us that there is a saviour, that there is a kinsman. And so, Lord, we thank you that all you have revealed to us, Lord, has helped to shape and mould and transform our lives. And, Father, we pray you continue to do so. Lord, we want to be washed by the water of your word, that we will be set apart for you, cleansed, Lord, from the things of this world, and have hearts and minds set upon you, Lord, we just give you this time now. Speak to us, we pray. Stir our hearts. Father, excite us with the wonderful truths in your word. Lord, with the knowledge of what is yet to come. And Father, stir us that we may want to go out and share the wonderful joy and the good news that we have in knowing you. So Lord, we just pray you bless this time and speak to us now. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're up as far as chapter 11 in our verse-by-verse study through the book of Revelation. And chapter 11 is a chapter where we're introduced to two witnesses. Now, various Bible commentators have commented over the years that they see this as possibly one of the hardest chapters to understand in the book. Now, I don't agree with that. And the reason I don't is because the problems that people have when they look at this chapter is immediately they try to make things symbolic. Now, we have a problem to large today that people will tend to allegorize scripture it's very common and most churches unfortunately and i say most because it really is the majority of churches when they look at the things that we've been looking at in the likes of revelation and things to do with the end times or the fancy word that's put on is eschatology the study of last things people will try and say well it's just picture language it's referring to something else it means something other than that and of course the real problem then is well what does it mean Now we need to remind ourselves that right at the beginning of this book we're given this revelation of Jesus so that we would know the things that are coming to pass. That's the reason that God gives this revelation in the first place. So that we would know. So to wrap it up in some sort of allegorical mystery doesn't make any sense. It's a total contradiction of the reason we're given the book. So the only real way of taking this is that these are literal events recorded in advance that are telling us what is going to happen. And we don't need to try and second-guess how to draw your attention to what is sometimes referred to as the golden rule of interpretation. And there's a number of different rules that uh, theologians and commentators and scholars over the years have kind of almost agreed upon. But this is one of the key ones, and it's when the plain sense of Scripture makes common sense, seek no other sense. Take every word, its primary, ordinary, usual, literal meaning unless the facts of the immediate context studied in the light of related passages indicate clearly otherwise so we take it as literal unless it clearly intends us to take it other than that and and often we'll find that john will say i saw something it was like we know that he's trying to describe something he's giving us some sort of uh, image or metaphor to help us understand but all through scripture we have different things that are given and A a number of scholars, and Chuck Nisler being one of them, has said that as he's grown his his understanding of Scripture, he's had to revise his uh, approach on certain passages, and every time it has been to take it more literally. You see, God means what he says and says what he means. And we really can take God at his word. Now, in order to understand the events of chapter 11, we kind of have to do a little bit of background. Now, this may be familiar to some of you. This may be the first time you've heard these things. So let's just bear with me as we go through and look at the background. Now firstly we need to go back to Jesus' words. When Jesus was speaking to disciples, the disciples asked Jesus about the events that would surround his return. And Jesus in Matthew 24 And we have a a parallel account in uh, Luke and also Mark's gospel. But Matthew 24 is often the one that we we tend to go to. Jesus gives a very detailed description of the things that are going to take place. We've looked at a lot of this already. We refer to it often as the beginning of sorrows, the first part of what's going to happen. And Jesus himself then uses the phrase that after that, then there shall be great tribulation. And we've been kind of mapping that through as we've gone through our study so far. In Matthew 24 verse 3, the question is asked, when shall these things be? And what shall be the sign of thy coming at the end of the world? Now, Jesus speaks about a number of things, but one of the key things he does is point the back to the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 9, particularly, in verses 24 and 25, to a prophecy that was given by the angel Gabriel to Daniel. Now, that Passage; Those four verses are our key to understanding the end times in general. And particularly the, the opening verses of chapter 11 of Revelation as we're going to be looking at in a short while. Now, Daniel was just a teenager when he was taken from his home in Israel. Seemingly he was either a member of royalty or certainly a very well-to-do family in Israel. We don't know much about his parents, but they must have been godly because they named him Daniel. God is my judge. And Daniel, just to say, probably around 14 years old, taken away from the security of a, a godly family and taken to Babylon. You can imagine as Daniel is approaching this incredible city. It would be like in this you know day and age, somebody who's grown up in the countryside, going to London for the first time and seeing all the wonderful sights and the lights and the sounds. But that was how it was for Daniel. And Daniel had... Really no reason to worry about how he lived his life. There was nobody really checking up on him. He was encouraged to indulge in all that the land had. But Daniel didn't. We read in the book of Daniel in the opening chapter one of the most beautiful portions of scripture. But Daniel purposed in his heart not to be defiled. You know what a a lesson for us. You know, at whatever stage in our lives we are, we should purpose in our hearts not to be defiled with the things of this world. You know, Daniel was there and really nobody was looking, nobody was watching, it didn't matter, to, well it did, because it mattered to God. And even though these things were happening, Daniel knew that God was in control. Daniel, I'm sure, understood the prophecies that had been given by Jeremiah. Because by the time we get to chapter 9, almost 70 years have passed. That had been the 70 years that had been prophesied by Jeremiah. Jeremiah said that there would be a period, two periods actually of 70 years, one that would refer to the people, that they would be in captivity, the servitude of the nation as often referred to. There'd be a, another passage of 70 years, which had to do with the city, the desolations of Jerusalem. The first period of 70 years started in 606 BC when Daniel was taken away captive. The last period of 70 years started in 547 BC, oh sorry, 549 BC, uh, ago, right, uh, when the city of Jerusalem was destroyed and they were taken away captive. So the city was finally destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. So we have these two periods, one to do with the people, one to do with the city. And it's incredible because both periods of time were fulfilled literally to the day. Now, Daniel, in chapter 9, he's coming to this place where he knows that these prophecies are coming to their conclusion. takes them literally. God has said 70 years, so Daniel figured that wasn't some sort of allegorical thing that he had to try and put some sort of meaning on, that he just meant what God had said. So Daniel starts to pray in chapter 9. And it's a wonderful passage, and it's really worth doing a detailed study on. He starts to pray about his people and the city, because we've got these two Periods of time that God had decreed that they would be in judgment because of their disobedience. Partly because they hadn't allowed the land to lay fallow and have it Sabbath as they'd been instructed. God was now requiring of the people. So this is why God had allowed this judgment. Now, this passage, this, Daniel's praying and as he's praying, he's interrupted. And this is a kind of a quick answer to prayer because he's praying and straight away, Gabriel is there. He interrupts Daniel And we read in verse 24, 70 weeks are determined upon thy people. Now, before I go any further, we need to just clarify and understand what we mean by that. Because to you and I, if we take that literally, does that mean 70 weeks? Well, from a Jewish mindset, we need to understand that there's various periods of seven years or sevens that we find in scripture. There's, the word is there, shabuim. And it means weeks of years. That's what the literal meaning of that word in the Hebrew is. It's 70 weeks of years. So it's 70 times 7 years. It's 490 years of what is being decreed for the nation of Israel here. Now, of course, the Jews, same for us. We have a week of days, seven days. We're familiar with that. But the Jews also have a week of weeks. That's seven weeks. So it's equivalent to the first week being like a Monday, the second week being like a Tuesday. You know, you get the idea. And that's the period of time that we see going from the Feast of um, Firstfruits, let me just get my brain in gear, Feast of fruits up to the Feast of Pentecost. It's a seven week period, it's, it's 49 days and then it's that 50th day 50, 50th day being the day of Pentecost. But they also have a week of months and that's their religious calendar in effect, so all their feasts fall into this seven month period. And then they also have this week of years. And there's a number of times we find that played out in scripture. You can see the scriptures there. These are all in the notes. You can refer to it afterwards. So let's just clarify. We understand that we've been told that there's 490 years that God is now prophesying, determining for thy people, well, obviously Israel, and upon thy holy city. So there's no ambiguity talking about Israel, talking about Jerusalem. And we're told that in these 490 years, to finish transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up the vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Now we could do a week's study on just these things. Now, the one question we just want to ask is, has that happened yet? Well, no. Because clearly some of those things we know have not taken place. Not that we've noticed. You see, the prophecy is for Israel and Jerusalem. It's to finish transgression. That's not happened yet. To make an end of sins, well, we can argue that that was accomplished at Calvary. Reconciliation for iniquity, again, we can argue that was accomplished at Calvary. But bring in everlasting righteousness? Well, not yet. To seal up vision of prophecy? Again, not yet. To anoint the most holy, either place or the most holy one? Some commentators see that differently. But either way, we would argue that's not yet been accomplished. So, the next verse carries on and says, "No, therefore and understand. So we're we'll given some detail now. that so from the going forth of the command, so there's going to be a, a command given, to restore and build Jerusalem. Very specific in what we're told. There'll be a command to restore and build. Again, remember that as Daniel is in Babylon at this time, Jerusalem is laying in ruins. And that's partly why he'd been praying. He was sad that... The city that he'd grown up in as a, as a young boy was still laying desolate. So there would be a command given to restore and build Jerusalem. We're told from that command unto Messiah the Prince shall be seven weeks. That's 49 years and three score and two weeks. That's 434 years. And we're told that the streets shall be built again and the wall, even in troublous times. So we've got these 49 years and then 432 years. During that time, the street and wall are going to be rebuilt in these difficult times. And that's explained in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. Once that command was finally given, and we find it recorded in the book of Nehemiah, chapter 2, that the rebuilding of Israel was by no means easy. They had all sorts of trouble from this chap by the name of Sambalad and and Tobiah and so others that were really, really trying to put a stop to these things. But this period of 483 years, so you add those two numbers together, the 49 and 432, that whole period of 483 years was to conclude with the Messiah. Israel are told here, an incredible prophecy, the day or the, they're given the details of when their Messiah would come, at the end of this 483 year period. Now, we know that that command was given on the 1st of Nisan 445 B.C., Now, for us in our calendar, that will be the 14th of March, 445 BC, by the Persian king, Artaxerxes Longimanus. It was the 20th year of his reign. There are some people that question this. In Nehemiah chapter 2, we're given the detail, it goes on. But just simply we know, we've got all the details. You can see there that the first year of his reign was his ascension year, and this is the way they counted it for the Persian kings. So you can see that years of his reign... And we get down to the 20th year, 44, 45 BC. We know these dates from secular history. so There's no problem in understanding these things. So we've got that period that would terminate after this period of time with the Messiah coming. Israel knew when their Messiah would come. Now even today this is a problem for the Jews because they would still say their Messiah has not yet come and yet Daniel was given a prophecy saying exactly when the Messiah would come. How We can work out exactly how many days. We'll come back to that in a second. But let me just remind you what God says in Isaiah 46, 9 and 10. He says, remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is none else. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times the things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. It's incredible. God says that he can be tested because he records the future in advance. And it's one way that we can prove that he is God, that the word of God is what it says it is. God says there is no one else that could do this. No one else could tell the end from the beginning. I mean, Daniel is effectively beginning of a prophet, given a prophecy that he records that as we'll see, speaks not just of when the Messiah would come, but speaks into 500 years further on in human history. And we'll see that it speaks about the government that is ruling at that time. I mean that's incredible. I mean you can you and I couldn't imagine what this world would be like in five hundred years from now. In actual fact, I think we could because by then I'm sure the Lord will be back and we'll be part way into the millennium. But from the people in the world's perspective, if you asked anybody what will the world be like in five hundred years, we have no idea. There's no way you could even begin to imagine. And yet we have this prophecy that's been fulfilled in incredible detail. Now, just as another aside, in the Bible, prophetic years, when we have years in prophecy, they're always reckoned as 360-day years, not 365 and a quarter as we have now. And I'm not going to take you through all the reasons or possible reasons and conjectures why it's a very interesting study on its own, but there's just a whole bunch of scriptures there where you can see that a prophetic year is taken as 360 days. Now, just as an aside, I believe that once we used to have a 360-day orbit, Okay, And that's why I think the Bible works on this basis. We'll return to this 360-day measure by the time we get to the book of Revelation. Now, does that mean some sort of cataclysmic events that will change the procession of the earth around the sun? I don't know. We see all sorts of earthquakes and strange things happening. So that's a possibility. But interestingly enough, the ancient calendars were all based on 360 days. And of course, you've got 360 degrees in a circle. Where did that come from? And you can see many other religions have based their religious practices, their numbers of gods and so on, around 361 for each day of the year. The ancient cultures used to believe, even if it wasn't actually the case, but they certainly used to believe that we had a 360-day year. So regardless, the Bible uses that as its measure for prophecy. So we know we can work out then 360 days a year, we've got 483 years That gives us a total of 173,880 days. If we can take this literally, if we can be that precise with prophecy. So from that command being given, theoretically, we should be able to pinpoint the exact day the Messiah would come. Now the incredible thing is, we can. Because in John's Gospel, we're given an answer to a conundrum that is really played out all through. Jesus' ministry. You remember right from the time of the wedding in Cana at Galilee when Jesus turns the water into wine. And Jesus says, don't tell anybody. People come up to him after he's done miracles and he says, see you tell no man. All through Jesus' ministry, he plays down who he is. I mean, Isn't that kind of counterintuitive? Wasn't he there to present himself as a Messiah? But well, when we get to John's Gospel, after many, many scriptures, and we could go through them, we won't this morning, but... We get to this verse in John 12. Jesus answered them and, and saying, verse 23, the hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Up until now he said, my hour is not yet come. But now he says, the hour has finally come. Verse 27 carries on and says, now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say, Father, save me from this hour? He says, but from this hour, or sorry, from this cause, I came unto this hour. Jesus says, this is what it's all been about. John's Gospel is incredible. You know, the first 12 chapters or so, or 11 chapters, deal with the first three years, three and a half years of his ministry. The remainder of the book deals with one week. I mean, it's really detailed. It's the week we often refer to as Passion Week. It's an incredible portion of Scripture that details so many incredible things that we need to understand as believers and as a church. John's Gospel is a wonderful account given to us that we may know That Jesus is God. But anyway, this hour is what it's all been about. Where are we in the scheme of things? Well, this was the Saturday evening prior to Jesus riding into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. It was the only day in Jesus' entire ministry that he allowed himself to be presented as king. In fact, not only did he allow it, he arranged the whole thing. Remember he went and said to the disciples to go and get a donkey? That wasn't just an accidental thing because when a king came in a time of peace they would come riding a donkey. Solomon did exactly that and others we find in scripture. It was a practice. When a king came in time of war they would come on a horse. Of course there's no surprise that when Jesus comes back he'll come on a white horse. But we get to this point in Jesus' ministry. Now we'll look at the details in just a second but we carry on with his prophecy. After Three score and two. So after these things, so after Jesus has come, on that very day, on the exact day as been prophesied by Daniel almost five centuries earlier. In fact, over five centuries earlier to be precise. We're told that after those things, after the three score and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, and of course a week later in fact not even quite a full week. Jesus rides in on the Sunday and on Thursday he's crucified. Messiah was cut off. And we're told, but not for himself. We know that Jesus was cut off. He was crucified for the sins of the whole world. And we're told, and the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city. Well, we know that that took place in AD 70. And we're introduced here to another individual, the prince that shall come. We know who destroyed the city. It was the Romans. And so this prince, if he's of that people, this prince must be of the Romans in some way, shape or form. It should destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end thereof shall be with a flood until the end of the war, desolations are determined. Let me just recap this. After the four hundred and eighty-three years, but before the final seven years, because we haven't got there yet, the Messiah is to be cut off. The city of Jerusalem is to be destroyed, all that took place as we've seen. And unto the end desolations will continue, which really means it's going to be a bumpy ride for Israel. We're told of this prince who will come, who will be of those who destroy the city. This prince will come from Rome. And now we're told about this final week. And this is where we're really most interested. And he, that's the prince that is going to come, shall confirm the covenant, ratify some sort of agreement with many for one week. Again, that's a week of years. So for a period of seven years, a covenant is going to be established. But in the middle of that seven year period, he shall, cease, shall cause the sacrifice and oblation to cease and for the overspreading of abominations he shall make it desolate even until the consummation and that determined shall be poured upon the desolate. Let me just break that down. So this prince that is coming is going to confirm this covenant for the final seven years of this prophecy of Daniel. The seven year period is detailed in Re- in Daniel 7, Revelation 6 we've seen already and we're going to see more in Revelation 13 in a couple of weeks time. Midway through this seven year period this prince who's allowed this covenant to be ratified or established, is then going to suddenly stop the Jews sacrificing. And Jesus in Matthew 24 refers to that event as one of the key markers that is going to precede his return. And again, the Jews are going to be in for a very rough ride through this period of time. So this prophecy, verse 25, it gives us the first period of time, this 69 weeks or 483 years from the command being given until the Messiah. Then we have this interval where we've seen already Jesus cut off, crucified, the temple has been destroyed, Jews have gone through a very difficult time all through this period. We are in the church age as we refer to it now. And then we've got this tribulation period, the 70th week. Now, We know that the temple has got to be rebuilt, and this is one of the key things, because this individual is going to stop the sacrifices. If he's going to stop them, they must have restarted. At the moment, the Jews are not offering sacrifices because they don't have a temple. It's incredible, if you go on the internet and you start looking for things about the temple in Jerusalem, you will find website after website and page after page of people talking about the rebuilding of the temple. There are senior politicians in Israel that are calling for the rebuilding of the temple. The Jewish people want this to happen. It's as if, through all of this, God has had two stopwatches. One for Israel, one for the church. God's clock for Israel started back here in this prophecy. It was put on a hold here. We've got this interval where we've got the church age and the church will be taken out before God then recommences this last period of time dealing with Israel, and following which Jesus then will return for the second coming. So you've got Israel as the focal point for this first period, and again for this last period of time. Those who suggest the church is the new Israel, really have got no idea of these things in scripture, they've never read them. I'm not going to go through this in detail, i leave it in the notes purely because it's just fascinating. But God has dealt with Israel in four periods of 490 years through history. This just demonstrates God's incredible and complete control on history. Each one of these, if you look at the total number of years and you minus the amount of time Israel were out of favor or in disobedience to God, you are left with a period of 490 years from Abraham to the Exodus, from the Exodus to the temple, from the temple to this edict of Artaxerxes that we've mentioned and then from, finally from that Edict of Xerxes, this command that's given until the second coming, each of them a period of 490 years. And I just want to throw another aside because I think this is fabulous and fascinating. Peter comes to Jesus and kind of quite uh, boldly almost says, Jesus, how often should I forgive my, my brother? He says, uh, seven times? Now, let me clarify, because Peter's not just going up there and uh, just picking a random number. You see, for the Jews, seven weeks of years would take us up to this 49 years. And the 50th year was the year of Jubilee. It was the year when all debts would be forgiven, all sins would be wiped clean. So Peter wasn't just randomly saying anything. And he was, I think, trying to impress Jesus and probably thinking it through. Thinking it in the Jewish mindset. How often should I forgive? Should I forgive up until the Jubilee? Is that what we're to do? And Jesus says unto him, I say not until seven times, but until 70 times seven. Now, sadly, a lot of modern translations absolutely destroy this because they have no concept. And I would suggest no real reverence for scripture. They try and interpret things and give you an interpretation rather than letting you have the scripture. A lot of them say 77 times or other... Things that's not what it's saying Jesus said until 70 times 7 Jesus said until 490 times now again you and I don't get that instantly but what Jesus was saying is how often should you forgive your brother up until the kingdom comes up until Jesus returns because then everything is going to be different Jesus will be on the throne that's just a fabulous insight into the mindset of Peter but also Jesus' response based upon this 490 years so once again We come back to this period of time. This very day was the day that Jesus rode into Jerusalem. And it's just just an incredible prophecy. 173,880 days after the command is given, Jesus rides into Jerusalem on the very day. It is one of the most amazing prophecies in the Bible. Now, with that background, we go into chapter 11. And what we find is, Let's look at the opening verse. There was given me a reed like unto a rod. And the angel stood, now this the angel that we've seen in the previous chapter that had put one leg on the sea, one leg on the, 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 the land and so on, and declaring that this is now the Lord's. This angel is now speaking and saying, rise and measure the temple of God. Now, had we not thought this through and looked at what we just looked at, that might seem strange to us. What temple are we talking about? We're talking about the rebuilt temple the one that is going to be rebuilt because of this prophecy, that one is going to come who's going to establish this covenant with Israel for seven years, and in the middle of the seven years, he's going to stop them sacrificing. It demands a temple be rebuilt. This is rise and measure the temple of God and the altar, and them that worship therein. So note here, we've got temple, and we've got worshippers. Jay Vernon McGee makes this comment. He says, every time you see the beginning of measurements in either the Old or the New Testament, it indicates that God is beginning to deal with the nation of Israel. That's his observation. And he gives a couple of scriptural references for that. And it just seemed to be that once again, God is dealing with Israel at this point. And the other thing I want to just mention here is we've been following through chronologically from the beginning of this seven-year period. We've got to this midpoint where... Jesus now effectively claims back title of the earth. And it's now as if we reset and we go back to the beginning of the seven years. And we're now being given some additional information, but right from the start of the seven years. Interestingly here, it's not only the temple, but the worshippers that are being measured. It's just quite an interesting aside that we could probably spend longer talking about. But we move on. But the court that was without the temple leave out and measure it not for it is given unto the Gentiles and the holy city shall they tread underfoot forty and two months. It's a very provocative suggestion here because we're talking about this temple that's going to be rebuilt and we're told that don't measure the, the court of the Gentiles. Now let me show you in a minute what that's referring to. Jesus said in Luke 21 though, verse 24, Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. This is exactly what we're seeing here. The Gentiles still have this control and they seemingly will do up until the second coming when Jesus will come and claim it all back. But this outer court area that John is told not to measure here, is the the court of the Gentiles. Now that is a a model that exists in the Temple Institute in Jerusalem of the temple area, the temple proper. Now this is what they are intending to rebuild on the Temple Mount. But this is the, the main temple area. Now alongside this, that's another view of it. We've got, that's the bit that you've just looked at there. This is the court of the Gentiles. The bit that's outside. Now this is the bit that John is told not to measure. Now why is that interesting? Well if you know what Jerusalem looks like today, you'll realize that on the Temple Mount, sat right about here, is the Dome of the Rock. Now this is a a photoshopped image, and what is suggested by some, is that right next to the Dome of the Rock, there is enough room for Israel to rebuild their temple. If they did, it would look something like that. It's very provocative. You just kind of think, what would happen with the international relations? How would this come about? Well, bear in mind, this... Political leader is going to come on the scene who's going to allow covenant of some description to be ratified with Israel for seven years, and it will demand the temple be rebuilt. Now, will the temple be be rebuilt from that point? Well, I think it has to be because of the nature of what we're reading here. Because John is already seeing a temple and worshippers at the beginning, I believe, of the seven-year period. Now. There are those who think and suggest that down here actually is another location of where the temple could be built. So it may not be here, it may actually be this side. But either way, relevantly in the sense of location, I believe the temple will be rebuilt. Both Jesus, Paul, John all spoke about it and of course Daniel as we've seen. And then we read, And I will give power unto my two witnesses. And they shall prophesy 1,200 and threescore days clothed in sackcloth. Now again, using 360 days for a year, we're given the time frame here, it's three and a half years that these two witnesses are supernaturally empowered. So during this time, God is going to send two witnesses to preach to whosoever has ears to hear. The fact that God sends them to witness, of course, is another testimony to God's great grace. Not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Now we've already seen that the judgments of the first half of the tribulation are nothing like ever seen in the earth. And yet even during that time we see God being merciful. A third of the trees, a third of the grass, a third of the ships, you know, all those kind of things. The judgments come but they're limited. And Jesus then speaks of the second half He says, For then there shall be great tribulation such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time, no, nor ever shall be. So these two witnesses seemingly are sent in for this first period of time before the door, in a sense, is really closed. Before the great tribulation. To stand and to witness and to be a testimony before the coming of the day of the Lord. That day of the Lord specifically referring to those last three and a half years. We're told in verse 4, These are the two olive trees and the two candlesticks standing before the God of the earth. It's interesting because olive trees are mentioned seven times in scripture and seemingly they're linked with faithfulness. And it seems to characterize these two individuals. Chapter 1, you remember, it was the church who were the candlesticks. Us. But now we're told that these are the candlesticks. Now that makes total sense because if the church has now been removed because of the rapture, God wants to leave a witness. And so these two individuals are brought into to play to witness during this time. Now, it may be, if you remember, we saw those 144,000 Jews that are supernaturally sealed. Well, let me just pose this to you. If they were believers, if they were Christians, would they not have been raptured with the church? Is it possible that these two witnesses, because of their preaching in Jerusalem, end up converting 144,000 Jews who then themselves go out and preach to a multitude who are also then saved? It's a possibility. Interestingly, in Zechariah, there's a seemingly prophetic looking forward to this time. Where he then answered I and said unto him, what are these two olive trees? Again, same ideas. Upon the right side of the candlestick and upon the left side thereof. And he goes on in verse 13. Of Zechariah 4 says, And he answered and said to me, Knowest thou not what these be? And I said, No, my Lord. And then he said, These are the two anointed ones that stand by the Lord Of the whole earth. Speaking of these individuals, even back in the Old Testament, these things are, are recorded. Now this is a really incredible thing because we're told that if any man will hurt them, fire proceeds out of their mouth and devours their enemies. And if any man will hurt them, he must in this manner be killed. And these have power to shut heaven that it rain not in the days of their prophecy and have power over the waters to turn them to blood and to smite the earth with all plagues as often as they will. This is incredible. I mean, how many people are seriously going to try and destroy these two witnesses before they realise that, effectively, they're indestructible? Uh, The verse here implies that some are going to try. It's obviously going to attract an awful lot of attention. You know, we get a slow news day in this country and all sorts of things, bizarre things, you know, a cat stuck up a tree or a a whale swimming up the Thames or something makes the news headlines. Well, this is going to make the headlines. You know, people are going to have their TVs on all around the world watching these events. Bear in mind, these are going to be prophesying and and witnessing for three and a half years in Jerusalem. And clearly somebody at some point, not long after they get going, is going to get frustrated with them. And they're going to tell them to stop. And they're going to try and hurt them. And all of a sudden, fire is going to come out of their mouths and destroy them. Are we really... Do we believe this literally? I believe it literally. I really believe this is exactly what we'll see. And it's it's strange in a sense for us now. I think when you get there, when you start to see all the things that are unfolding during this first period of three and a half years, this will start to seem kind of almost normal. That's how scary these times are going to be. And notice also... They're going to smite the earth with plagues. That implies that this is going to go way beyond just Jerusalem. The effect of their ministry is going to be worldwide. Now, this brings the question as to their identity. Now, we've got some options here. One is, we don't know. Okay? Possibly that's true. We can't be absolutely sure because we're not given names, we're not given specific details as to who they are. So it may be that we just don't know. and Maybe we should just put it to one side. But I don't think We should. And I'll tell you why. Because God gives us some really specific details. And I think it's illuminating when you start to look at it. Now, one of the suggestions are Joshua and Zerubbabel. And that's because of some of the details that are recorded in Zechariah 4. But other than that passage, there's no other real credible reason for suggesting that those two individuals, and that's not the Joshua of the book of Joshua, by the way. That's another Joshua later on. Another suggestion is Elijah and Enoch. Now, the reason people suggest Elijah and Enoch is because of, effectively, Hebrews 9.27, where it says that it's appointed to all men once to die and then the judgment. And people will say, and point out quite rightly, that neither Elijah or Enoch died. Both of them were taken alive up into heaven. That's true. But you see, the verse in Hebrews 9.27 is sending a principle. It says it's appointed to all men once to die, and then the judgment. That's a basic principle. But of course, there are a number of people in Scripture that die more than once. Lazarus, for example. Jairus' daughter. There's a number in, in the Old Testament, people that were raised from the dead. So, you can't use that verse as a rule of thumb to say everybody therefore must only die once, and because these didn't die, they've got to come back and die again. That's the reasoning. I understand it, but I don't think that answers the question for us. However, Elijah certainly is an interesting character because the other suggestion is that these two individuals will be Elijah and Moses. Now let me give you the reasons why I personally believe that that will be the case. Elijah was known for calling down fire from heaven, one of the attributes of these individuals. We read that in Second Kings 1.10, also in Luke 9.54, a reference there. Elijah also stopped the rain for three and a half years. It's another thing that these two individuals will be given the power to do. And that will happen in the days of Ahab. Elijah did that. It's confirmed in James 5.17 that Elijah was a man of like passions and prayed earnestly that it might not rain for three and a half years and it didn't. So the fact that we have the same miracles and the same time period is of course not conclusive but it certainly points to Elijah as a possibility. But even more so, is in Malachi 4, 5 and 6, we're told there that God would send Elijah before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Now notice the timing. God would send Elijah before the great and dreadful day. It it would come as a warning. Now, of course, John the Baptist comes in the spirit and power of Elijah. And when Jesus asked the question, he makes it very clear that John the Baptist was not Elijah. John came in the spirit and power of Elijah. It was an Elijah-like herald. But Elijah will still return, from what Scripture tells us. He will come again before that great and dreadful day of the Lord. Well, that's exactly where we are, this first period of three and a half years, before we get to that great tribulation, the last three and a half years. So certainly it's very provocative to see Elijah as being one of these individuals. Interestingly, because of the prophecy in Malachi, the Jews even to this day leave a spare chair out of their Passover meals in case Elijah turns up. Although they may be far from God, they still have a lot of things where they've drawn from Scripture some of the truths that will be fulfilled. But interestingly, Elijah isn't the only prophet that the Bible speaks about returning. In John chapter 1, verse 25, the people ask John the Baptist there, why do you baptize then if you're not the Christ or Elijah, both of whom they knew were coming? Neither that prophet. Well, who's that prophet? Again, the people say to John the Baptist, why are you baptizing if you're not Christ, or Elijah, or that prophet? Well, the, that prophet who they were referring to was none other than Moses. This comes from a prophecy in Deuteronomy 18.18. 18, and the Jews therefore believe that Moses himself will also return before the coming of the Lord. Now, that's interesting because the jigsaw starts to kind of fit neatly together, doesn't it? You see, we look at the list of miracles, we've seen already ones that Elijah will do. Half of them have already been performed by him. But the other half that are listed were performed at the hand of Moses. In Exodus 7.17, Moses turns the water to blood. One of the things they can do. From Exodus 7 through to chapter 11, Moses unleashed a total of ten plagues on the land of Egypt. And we're told that these individuals here, these two witnesses, will unleash these plagues. Another observation, which again I think is provocative, Back in Matthew 17, verses 1 to 13, we read of a very strange encounter. We're told that after six days, Jesus took Peter and James and John and his brother and brought them up to a high mountain apart and was transfigured before them. And his face did shine as the sun and his raiment was white as the light. And behold, there appeared unto them Moses and Elijah, talking with him. Now I just want to point out there, both Moses and Elijah appeared to look identical. Identical. So there's no issue with the fact that Elijah was raptured and Moses seemingly was buried. And by the way, that's a very interesting one, isn't it? Moses was buried, who by? God. Why is it in the book of Jude we find that Satan wanted the body of Moses? He contended over the fact that where, where is the body of Moses? I just think it's interesting. Why was Satan so interested in that? Maybe because of these things we're looking at now. But of course, Peter said to Jesus, Lord it's not good for us to be here, if thou will let us make three tabernacles, one for thee, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Notice what they came to speak to Jesus about, on the Mount of transfiguration. They came to speak of his decease which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. They came to talk about what was about to just happen, or about to happen in, in, in the very near future. It's interesting, isn't it, that God sends, or Jesus calls, however this works, but God seemingly sends Moses and Elijah to talk to Jesus for some specific reason. Have you ever asked yourself why? Well, they come clearly to talk about Jesus' death. That's what we're told. I think there's an interesting reason for this, because under the law of Moses, two witnesses were always required to establish the truth about any given situation. Jesus confirms it in John 18, 17. He says, It is also written in your law that the testimony of two men is true. So, Jesus just acknowledging. You can't just take the testimony of one man, it has to take the testimony of two men. Now, in Luke 24, he says this, It came to pass as that they were much perplexed. Now, this is on the morning of the resurrection. Thereabout, behold, two men stood by them in shining garments and they were afraid and bowed down their faces to the earth and they said unto them why seek you the living among the dead see luke specifically uses the word the greek word here anēr for man there are other words this angelos which is means messenger and is often translated as angel the word specifically used by dr luke He was a physician. He kind of understood these things. He uses a specific word for man. A lot of people think these were just two angelic beings that turned up at the tomb. Oh, by the way, there were three angels in total. There's a great angel that comes and moves the the stone away. There's two angels that come and sit either end of the place where Jesus' body lay, which is a beautiful picture of the Ark of the Covenant. Remember on top of the Ark of the Covenant, there was the mercy seat where the blood was sprinkled. And there was an angel either end of that on the Ark of the Covenant... And then we find these two cherubim, effectively, sadly the end of where Jesus' body lay, where his blood had been sprinkled. That aside, there were some angels there that morning, no question. But Luke specifically tells us there were two men there, in shining apparel, just as Moses and Elijah had been seen. We're not told on this occasion who they were. My conjecture is that it was Moses and Elijah. Why were they there? I believe they were there to witness the resurrection of Jesus. I believe they were there to actually see the event taking place. Two men were always required to witness things, according to the Jewish law. It's also, we see these two men again at the ascension. It's Luke again that records it and tells us that while they looked up steadfastly toward heaven, as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel. I mean, it's not just two men, but it's the same kind of appearance as Moses and Elijah on the transfiguration and those two men at the tomb. So, it's just very provocative when you put all these things together. Now, the reason I think this is the case It's because Moses and Elijah are indeed two witnesses, already. You see, Moses represents the law. Elijah represents the prophets. They are the witnesses that God has given. You remember the the account we read in Luke 16 of the rich man and Lazarus, and the rich man realises his error and mistake and begs that, Abraham, or, or sorry, Lazarus be sent back, and he's speaking to Abraham, to go and warn his brothers. And the reply is given, they have Moses and the prophets. See, that was the witness they'd been given. That is what God has given each one of us. We have Moses, we have the law of God, and we're told in, in the book of Psalms that the law of the Lord is perfect. Psalm 19, converting the soul. That's what the law is for. The law shows that we are guilty. The law was given to confine all under sin, Paul tells us in Galatians. And of course the prophets are there to give us this wonderful proof. We looked at earlier that verse in Isaiah 46. God says, test me, try me. I can tell the future before it happens. No one else can do that. Peter speaks of the more sure word of prophecy, greater than any experience. In fact, he relates to that experience of the the, the transfiguration. And he says, prophecy is a greater witness than any experience can ever be. So we have the law and the prophets, the two witnesses that God has already given throughout all of history. So of course it seems very, very likely that Moses and Elijah will indeed be these two individuals that will turn up again and they'll resume their roles. Once again being supernaturally empowered to produce the miracles that God had allowed them to do the first time round. And again the purpose of this is to pull men out of the fire. To give men an opportunity to repent before it's too late. And I believe that many will during this time. We're going to see a little bit later on, not this morning, in a few weeks' time when we get there, a multitude that come out of the tribulation. And they come because I believe the preaching of Moses and Elijah, these two witnesses, and those 144,000 Jews and so on. We're then told, verse 7. When they shall have finished their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit shall make war against them and shall overcome them and kill them. You see, it's interesting that they can't touch God's anointed people until the time that God allows. That should be a great comfort for you and I. It means that it doesn't matter what the world says, does or wants to do, until God grants permission, God is not going to let anybody interfere with the plans that he has for you. Psalm 118 verse 6 says, The Lord is on my side. I'll not fear what man can do unto me. Paul, on a number of occasions, spoke of his willingness to offer up his life. In 2 Timothy he says, For I am now ready to be offered. The time of my departure is at hand. He knew that he'd done the things that God had called him to do. But you know, Paul effectively was indestructible, although that he he got all sorts of things. We told in um, to Corinthians. Of the Jews, five times I received forty stripes, Three times I was beaten with rods, once stoned, three times suffered sh- shipwreck, a day and a night I've been in the, the deep, in the sea, in journeys often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils by my own countrymen, in perils by the heathen, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, and so on and so on and so on. Paul had a rough time. But you know, Paul was stoned and dragged out of the city and left for dead. Some people think he did even die. And it was at that point he was caught up to the third heaven. May or may not be the case, but But either way, Paul was not destroyed until the time that God had allowed him to finish his course. And these individuals here, these two witnesses, once again, until God allows, nobody can do away with them. Our lives are in God's hands, and we should take great comfort in that. But notice what we're then told. And their dead bodies shall lie in the street of the great city, speaking of Jerusalem, which is spiritually called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. Now, it's interesting because You just wonder why they don't bury them. They're left there for three days. Maybe people are just too nervous to approach their bodies. Maybe they're wondering what happens if they still breathe out fire. Notice also this is the first time we're introduced now to the beast, Antichrist. From this point he's going to be referred to as the beast 36 times, which if you're interested in Bible numerics is 6 times 6. 6 being the number of man. So although Antichrist is a man, he's going to be possessed by a supernatural power, we're told that he comes out of the bottomless pit, and because this power will not indwell Antichrist until the halfway point through the tribulation. You see, up until this point, Antichrist is going to be seen to be a wonderful leader, bringing peace to the world. But at this point, the beast ascends out of the bottomless pit. Antichrist is going to be indwelt by the power of the devil, and we're going to find that at this point Satan is going to get effectively kicked out of heaven he has access to the throne we read down in the book of job up until a certain point jesus spoke of Satan from falling from from heaven like lightning and they of the people and kindreds and tongues of nations shall see their dead bodies three days and a half and shall not suffer their bodies to be put in graves. So again, seemingly quite concerned. And notice everybody around the world is going to see. This is going to be on CNN, Sky News, BBC News 24. I mean, that in itself is incredible because even 50 years ago, you'd have read this and thought, well, how can everybody around the world see them? I mean, now, if things are televised, everybody can see it around the world. And then notice, and they that dwell upon the earth shall rejoice over them and make merry. and shall send gifts to one another, because these two prophets tormented them that dwell on the earth. Finally, their voices have been silent. No more are they talking about this Jesus and the people in the world celebrate. That phrase about those that dwell on the earth occurs a number of times in the book of Revelation. It's speaking about those who have made the earth their home. By the way, there's a, an exclusive newsflash. Just turn with me very quickly to Psalm 79. You know, CNN and BBC News 24 will think they've got the exclusive on this. But actually, Azef, the psalmist of Israel, got the exclusive. And we read there, O oh God, the heathen are come into thine inheritance. Thy holy temple have they defiled. They have laid Jerusalem on heaps. The dead bodies of thy servants have they given to be meat unto the fowls of the heaven and the flesh of the saints unto the beasts of the earth. Their blood have they shed like water round about Jerusalem and there was none to bury them. Now, of course, that could be seen as being a prophetic reference to the Babylonian invasion and conquest. But I think it's equally applicable and may well be a direct prophecy of the events that we're looking at here because the bodies of the servants of the Lord have been slain in Jerusalem. Verse 11, And after three days and a half, the Spirit of life from God entered into them, and they stood upon their feet, and great fear fell upon them which saw them. I'm No doubt it did. Could you imagine this? You know, for three and a half years they've been preaching and speaking about Jesus and salvation in Jesus' name. Speaking about the fact that the kingdom is coming. This gospel of the kingdom being preached again, and it's time to repent because judgment is at hand. And finally they're silenced, and the world celebrates and cheers. And then suddenly... After three and a half days of them being dead, they get up on their feet. I mean, you could just just see breaking news come up all around the TV sets around the world. And they heard a great voice from heaven saying, unto them, come up hither. That's a lovely call. That's a a rapture call. That's the same call that we get in uh, Revelation chapter 4 verse 1 where John is told, come up here. I believe that's symbolic of the rapture of the church as well. Which will occur at that point back in chapter 4 we looked at when we were there. But these individuals, are called up, these two witnesses, and they ascended up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies beheld them. They looked on, probably jaws dropped wide open. And the same hour, there was a great earthquake, and the tenth part of the city fell. Ten so percent of Jerusalem is destroyed, effectively, in the earthquake. And there were slain of men, seven thousand, and the remnant were affrighted and gave glory to the God of heaven. Notice though that they they give glory, they acknowledge that God is doing it, they don't repent though. The second woe is past. behold the third woe comes quickly. So after verses 1 to 13 that we've just looked at this morning, we're now back chronologically to where we were at the end of chapter 10. You see, we've just seen a kind of a, a rewind. We've just gone back to the beginning of the seven years. We've seen these things take place for that first three and a half years and we've now come back to the same point. You remember the angel put the foot on the land and the sea and declared time is no more, you know, time's up for the people of the earth. The ministry of these two witnesses is now over. They've gone back to be with the Lord in heaven. And the seventh angel sounded and there was great voices in heaven saying the kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever. Satan's lost. Satan has lost control of the earth at this point, totally. This now is Jesus' place. And we're going to see an incredible transformation start to take place. Now, before Jesus comes back to rule and reign, before earth can experience that blessing, it's going to be purged. And that's what we're going to see Through the remainder of the book. Verse 16 we carry on. And the four and twenty elders which sat before God on their seats fell upon their faces. There we go again. How many times we find ourselves just overwhelmed in the presence of the Lord? Fell upon their faces and worshipping God. Saying, we give thanks, O Lord God Almighty, which art and was and art to come, because thou hast taken to thee thy great power and has reigned. You see... Not only do we give glory, but we worship. That's what the people of the world didn't do. They gave glory to God, they acknowledged, but they didn't worship him. But our privilege is to worship him. That phrase there, and has reigned, the Greek tense of the word is the ingressive, first, aorist active, indicative. If that means anything to you, it doesn't mean a lot to me, I'll be honest, but that's what Dr. Chuck Misner tells us. It means this, that it should be read, thou has begun to reign. And that's exactly what we see, because this is the point now, halfway through this tribulation, that Christ has begun to reign. He's not yet come back to the earth and claimed the the throne of David as such, but he's claimed back title to the earth to himself. And the nations were angry, and thy wrath is come, and the time of the dead, that they should be judged, and that thou should give reward unto thy servants, the prophets, and to the saints, and them that fear thy name, small and great and should destroy them which destroy the earth. It's interesting. Thy wrath is come. The great tribulation is now here. This is the point we've got to. And we've got a lot of people in the world today that are very concerned about the earth, Greenpeace and all sorts of other organizations. And God is also concerned because he's going to, they should destroy them which destroy the earth. The really sad thing is most of those people that are so conscious about the earth are not going to be around to enjoy it because they will be judged because they have not accepted the Creator. They worship the creation, but they reject the creator. And the temple of God, now John is effectively transported back from earth to heaven. in the, the vision he's receiving, as he's seeing all these things, the temple of God was open in heaven. Now remember, we have that temple that's been rebuilt on earth, but the real temple, the real tabernacle in a sense, was always in heaven, the model that these things were built from. And there was seen in his temple the ark of his testament. Now Moses made a copy of, of this one. And that's the one they carried around in the wilderness and so on. And eventually David moved to Jerusalem. And there were lightnings of voices and thunderings and an earthquake and great hail. All these effects of things that are responding to what we're seeing in heaven. And we'll pick it up from there next week as we move into now this really, really bleak time for the earth as God's judgment really fully comes. Let's bow our hearts. Well, Father, we thank you. <laughs> For your word, once again, Lord, help us to understand these things, Lord, just from a chronological and from a an understanding of how these things fit together, perspective, Lord. We want to, to know the details, but Father, more importantly, we want to understand the spiritual lessons that we need to be learning. Father, firstly, that we need to not just glorify you, but worship you. No, not just like the people that dwell on the earth and acknowledge you, but to worship you with our lives. Father, we pray too that knowing these things will come to pass, that we also would seek to warn people that your judgment is coming, that Lord, time is running out. And Father, there will be two witnesses sent, and Lord, whether they will be Moses and Elijah or not, they will still be representative, Lord, of the law and the prophets, the witnesses that you have given. And Father, we have your word, your law, we have the testimony of the prophets. We can go to people right now, And share with them what you have revealed in your word. Lord, as we read in that account, in Luke's gospel, they have the law and the prophets, let them hear them. Because Lord, people aren't persuaded, even though one has risen from the dead. Oh Lord, we thank you that that resurrection is the basis for our faith. And Lord, we have no doubt. Father, give us that boldness to go and share with others. Father, we thank you for this time. Impress these things upon our hearts, we pray. And keep us growing in knowledge and grace. We ask in the name of Jesus. Amen.